G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Although I'm starting to wonder if we should have called the show Answers to Questions about Enoch. Please tell me we're done talking about Enoch. Yeah, mate, don't worry. We're definitely finished with Enoch and with the books thereof. And that means it's time to get back to the genealogy we've been crawling through in this season of the podcast as we explore Genesis 5. So now it's time to talk about the son of Enoch, who is, of course, the legendary Methuselah. Why don't we start by reading the scripture? Methuselah had a uh, rookie card on The Simpsons, I believe. Um, yes, that would be a uh, nice change from all this uh, apocryphal stuff. I'll be looking forward to getting back into the Bible, I must say. All right, let's do it. This is Genesis 5 from verse 25 to 27. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Okay, so that was the ESV, which follows the Masoretic text. Now I'm going to give you another reading. This time we're going to read the New English version of this Septuagint. Pay attention to the numbers here. Again, from verse 25, And Methuselah lived 167 years and became the father of Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he became the father of Lamech 802 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah, which he lived, amounted to 969 years, and he died. Now, I'm going to give you another version, and this time it's from the Samaritan Pentateuch, from verse 25. And Methuselah lived and 67 years, and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 653 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 720 years, and he died. Now, if you were trying to follow along in your English Bible, you will have noticed that some of those numbers were different. Yeah, all three of those had differences. We talked about that earlier this season of the show, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Looking at the age at which Methuselah had his son, we find three different figures in use across the three manuscript traditions. We had 187, 167, and 67. We've also got to factor in that there's more than one version of the Septuagint in circulation. The Septuagint was actually widely copied and circulated all over the ancient world, and there is significant evidence that there were versions of the Greek text that featured the number 187 here. We actually have copies of that. Unlike the Masoretic text, which was tightly controlled by the Masoretes, the Septuagint enjoyed widespread circulation, which inevitably resulted in minor manuscript errors creeping in here and there. In addition to that, we have evidence from the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, which show that the original Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible used the number 187 here. I have mentioned before that we have external evidence, such as the historian Josephus, who was fluent in Hebrew and had no need to utilise the Greek translation, and at a time that predated the Masoretic tradition, his own text, which relied on the Hebrew original, is consistent with the reading of 187 years. So it's that kind of stuff that helps us reconstruct the original text even when we don't have access to the original. Exactly. Yeah, if we turn our attention for a moment to the Samaritan Pentateuch, what we're going to see there is evidence that the Samaritan text followed a variant reading of the Septuagint, which featured the number 167 here. And we see that evidence in a close reading of the text where it's clear that the number 100 has been removed, and yet the grammar still shows that it had been there. 
Looking at the grammar of the original text, you can see where that number 100 was removed, and that's consistent with what we've seen in other instances with the Samaritan Pentateuch, which we talked about earlier in this season of the podcast. I won't go back over that ground again, but I just wanted you to see how we can see from the different stages of the development of this text, the provenance of each tradition. Getting back to the two major manuscript traditions, which are the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, we still end up with 969 years total for Methuselah's life. And that's because, as I've said before, the number of years remaining in the lifespan of each patriarch after the birth of their son is just the number that's calculated to fit the total. Nobody seems to be putting any particular weight on preserving any particular number, as long as it adds up. Critics of the Septuagint will argue that this chronology is flawed because we know that Methuselah doesn't get on the ark with Noah and his family. And in fact, if we use the begetting age from the version of the Greek text that the Samaritans had originally possessed, we end up in a situation where Methuselah lives 14 years beyond the date of the flood. And that's exactly what you see in the version that I read to you in the New English translation of the Septuagint. You wouldn't even notice that without doing the math there. Yeah, and that's one part of the evidence that the Masoretic text was not original because it too had to ensure that Methuselah did not live beyond the flood and the way that it handled that situation was to ensure that he died that same year. That wasn't done by manipulating the data in Methuselah's case but by changing other parts of Genesis 5. The idea that Methuselah should die in the year of the flood has been attractive to a lot of people historically because it helps them make sense of the name of Methuselah. It's a tricky name which is commonly recognised as comprising two separate elements. The first is a noun often understood as death. We see that frequently in the Hebrew Bible where the Hebrew word for death is mut. And the second is a verb form commonly interpreted as to bring or more accurately to send. Those elements seem to combine well if we take the chronology presented by either the Masoretic or Samaritan chronologies because it gives us a direct connection to the flood. It means that we can interpret the name of Methuselah as some kind of a warning or predictive statement telling us that the flood would come when he died or that the flood would send him to his death. So you'll see some commentators say that this name means he sends his death, or when he dies it will come, or his death will bring it. That's pretty morbid. Yeah, but that's not the only way to interpret the name of Methuselah. And when we consider the chronological issues that I've already talked about, it gives us confidence that we can relax our grip on that interpretation of the name of Methuselah because we're no longer necessarily tied to the year of the flood. And that means we're free to consider that the name of Methuselah does not necessarily make that connection. Another way to interpret the first part of the name is as a common Semitic root, meaning man. We see this in scripture with the use of the word metim, which is the plural form men. And we have examples of the same root in other Semitic language groups as well. That leaves the second part of the name, which is frequently interpreted in conjunction with the man of the first part of the name, as being some kind of reference to a sharp weapon. That would be thrust, thrown, or sent toward an enemy, such as a spear, javelin, or dart. So you'll get things like man of the dart or man of the spear. Now, I can see how those work linguistically, but there's a problem. That interpretation really doesn't fit with the overall theme of this passage of Scripture. We just got done talking about Enoch and how righteous he was and how he walked with God from the time that Methuselah was born for hundreds of years. So do we really think that Methuselah grew up to be someone familiar with weapons and violence? As the bearded and flannel wearing our Borland used to say, I don't think so, Tim. There it is. We made it almost through five seasons over two years of this podcast and finally got our first home improvement reference. I used to love that show. Oh, yeah. oh good work. Me too. Loved it. Anyway, I think in the context of the Genesis 6 narrative, 
we could be justified in associating people with violence, but that'd be jumping ahead and reading the violence back into the text. Remember that the aim of Genesis 5 is to present a tradition of righteous patriarchs from Adam to Noah. But having presented those two options for interpretation of Methuselah's name, we might be best served by choosing a little from column A and a little from column B, in keeping with the prophetic tradition around the descendants of Seth and especially Enoch, his father. We should consider that Methuselah most likely means man who is sent. He's a prophet. I think that fits far better within the context of the narrative and it doesn't violate the text. And we were talking last week about the book of Second Enoch and how according to that tradition, which dates at the earliest to the tail end of the Second Temple period, Methuselah was viewed as a successor to the priesthood of Seth, which was passed down to his grandson. I'm not telling you that to inject Second Enoch back into the text, but to show you where in Genesis those ideas come from. You get a lot of crazy stuff in late Jewish writings, but it's not all plucked out of thin air. This is built from meditations on the biblical text. Yeah, that was quite interesting. I never heard that stuff before. You know one thing that's interesting about this list of patriarchs? Nobody gets murdered. Maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you consider the condemnation that Jesus brought on the religious leaders of his day, you realise that the Jewish people had a history of killing preachers of righteousness. You actually have to go back before Genesis 5 to find the first murder of the righteous, and you won't see it again in the primeval history. And I just bring that up because all these patriarchs have these really super long lifespans as if to say that they lived so long because they didn't get killed. And Methuselah lives longest of all. Let's be honest, the only reason anyone remembers the name of Methuselah is because he lived to be nearly a thousand years old. Specifically, he's the oldest guy in the whole Bible, and that naturally brings us back to the question, what's up with living that long? Yeah, Tim, what's up with living that long? Uh, We've already talked before about how these long ages are not supposed to be understood literally. And I think they do provide a strong polemic against Israel's treatment of the prophets. But taken in its original context, these numbers served other purposes. The age at the beginning of the firstborn is there to make the chronology work. And for those who came in late, the chronology is oriented around the establishment of the original temple built by Solomon. The remaining years of Methuselah's life are given simply as a calculation to arrive at the final figure. So the number that really takes our interest with regard to Methuselah is that enigmatic 969, or as the text presents it, Nine and sixty years and nine hundred years. We often forget that Jared lived almost as long as Methuselah, falling only seven years short. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And in numerical terms, much of what we said about Jared, we could also say about Methuselah. We have the typical use of the number 900, which is associated with this longevity of kingship, and the number 60 provides an additional reinforcement of that kingly reign. 16 multiples of 60 is superlative, indicating the superiority of his kingship. And we were talking only last week about Melchizedek and the way that he was considered to be a king and priest. When you see the way that these patriarchs in Genesis 5 are spoken about in both king and priest functions, you can understand the desire in antiquity to connect Melchizedek to this pre-flood genealogical heritage. But getting back to Methuselah, the most enigmatic part of this whole discussion around him is the use of the number 9, as in 9 and 60. We get to 60, so what's happening with that cheeky little 9? Mm, The number nine is interesting because in late Jewish traditions, and I'm talking very, very late in the medieval period, Jewish scholars saw the number nine as being a central unifying point between realities on three distinct levels. We're talking about cosmology here. I just mentioned that because you might see that around in your studies if you're interested in Jewish numerology. But that's a late development arising from the mystical traditions that began with works like Third Enoch, which we mentioned last week. When we come back to the biblical period and the significance of the number nine, we see it as being significant because of its proximity to the number 10 and what that entails. 10 is symbolically the number of human completion or fullness or perfection. 
We're probably not talking about perfection here, but that nine is indicative that the fullness of that age, the end of the time of man in the pre-flood world, is coming. So we saw that Methuselah was a priest and a prophet, and now we know his message and what he had to say concerning the end of the world as they knew it. And we've been talking about prophets recently and the message that they brought concerning repentance and the coming judgment of God. Methuselah does not need to die in the year of the flood to bring a message that this judgment was coming. That'd be too little too late for those expecting some kind of prophetic clock. Imagine thinking to yourself, well, as long as Methuselah is alive, we've still got time. And then the flood comes and he dies and it's already too late. Thinking that's what the dinosaurs were doing? Oh, my goodness. Don't start me. <laughs> but if you're part of a tradition that has killed the prophets and thrown stones at God's messengers and ignored every warning given by the righteous man of God for generation after generation, you might want the voice of Methuselah to be silenced and cut off a little short. You might want him to meet his demise because he brought a message that you didn't want to hear. You might be thinking to yourself, I'm in a comfortable position here and things are going well for me and I don't want to hear about the end of the world because I like this world and I'm invested in it and I don't need people coming and telling me that it's all for nothing, that everything's going to be destroyed and that God is a righteous judge who's going to take all this away from me. That's the tradition of the Pharisees. That's the condemnation that Jesus brought upon them when he told them plainly that they were living for the kickbacks and the benefits and the luxuries of the little niche that they'd carved out for themselves in their comfortable, privileged lives. That's what Jesus had to say to the priests who were selected not because of the election of God, but because of the favoritism bestowed upon them by Herod. And the Samaritans too didn't want to hear this message. They'd gone and separated themselves from the Jewish community and were doing things their own way. And even though the Orthodox Jewish religion at the time was full of corruption, that didn't justify worshipping God on their own terms. For the rebellious and the unrepentant, and for those who felt that their place was belonging to this world and the luxuries that were brought about through corruption and violence, the message of repentance and of the judgment to come was unwelcome. And you know why, in both the Samaritan and the Masoretic traditions, Methuselah dies in the floodwater. He's literally drowned out among the violence and the corruption and the chaos of that world. Getting back to the Septuagint chronology, we find that Methuselah actually died some years prior to the flood, so that wasn't actually the case according to that timeline. Again, chronologies are just structures designed to reinforce a narrative, so whichever chronology you choose, you're not on the side of the objective facts because we cannot know those facts. But really, you're choosing a narrative. You can't tell me that your preferred chronology is the true one and that the others are falsehoods. The only reason that I'm using the Septuagint chronology as we go through our study of Genesis 5 is because the best evidence that we have points to this being the original chronology as written in Scripture prior to the 3rd century BC. That doesn't make it objectively or scientifically true, but it does make it authoritative. There's a difference there. There's a big difference. So don't go around acting like the chronology that you prefer is the only true one and that everybody else is wrong just because you don't know that. You, you don't and you can't. But what you can do is talk about the narratives that those chronologies present. That takes a lot more work, and it's not easy to see that or read it in the plain text, but it's there. And I think that might be the way to go about convincing people to see your point of view rather than trying to pretend that your preferred chronology is objectively true. Because as soon as you start doing that, you're really left with no choice but to be dishonest. You don't want to go there. Yeah, that's worth remembering. Anyway, back to Methuselah. And you'll find in almost every depiction of Methuselah in later extra-biblical writings, he's depicted as a priest or prophet. And that's true whether we're talking about rabbinic Judaism or in Christian literature or even in Islam and in Mormonism. Again, people aren't just making this stuff up. They're deriving it from the text. And just because you find it in non-Christian literature, that doesn't invalidate that message. The world at large might want to drown the message of the righteous in a flood, but the word of God will persevere and prove to be the condemnation of the unrighteous and the vindication of the faithful. Amen, brother. 
Uh, well, we've got an interesting question for Q&A coming up, but before we do that, what have we got next week? Next week, we're going to look at Lemek, and that's going to be an interesting development on what we were talking about last season when we had that other Lemek in the text. So we'll find some interesting stuff there. We're getting close to the pointy end of this season, Chris. It won't be long before we take our little study break and then begin our coverage of Genesis 6, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been waiting for anxiously. But as I say, there's still a little bit to go before we get there, including today's Q&A. What have you got for us, Chris? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. All right. Well, this one looks interesting. Colleen, a member of the Divine Council Worldview Bible Discussion Group on Facebook, asks, My first question, as I read your research, page 103 discusses Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Quote, Nimrod knew that Yahweh had brought the flood and destroyed the Nephilim of old despite their power. And Nimrod built for height to have clearance above floodwaters. If Nimrod knew about Yahweh's flood, would he also have known about the promise to not destroy by a flood again? Or is this flooding that Nimrod sought to overcome similar to annual Nile floods? Did Nimrod, given his allegiance to the dark underworld, then just not believe Yahweh about the promise? This is the first time I've read this account with a real backstory. Thank you. Okay, that's an interesting question. And it's nice to have some questions arising from my book because it means people are reading it and thinking about it. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The uh, book has been out for three years now and is still going strong. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty good feeling, I must admit. Incidentally, I have had people asking me lately if I will be making the transcripts of this podcast series available. Uh, The answer to that is yes and no. Uh, I'm not going to be releasing transcripts. However, the content of this podcast is going to find its way into my next book. So if you like my first book, Answers to Giant Questions, and if you've been following this podcast and enjoying it, then you know That book, when it comes out, is going to be worth the wait. And it won't just be stuff that we've already talked about on the show. There'll be a lot more. Anyway, that's a story for another time. Let's get back to Colleen's question. So we're talking about Nimrod. And according to the text of Genesis 10, he is the grandson of Noah. There's a fair chance that Nimrod and Noah were both alive at the same time. Let me just say that for those people who have their doubts about that statement because of potential chronological issues that we need to be mindful of the fact that this is literature and we are reading a story. I'm not saying it isn't true, but I am saying that the author is putting these people in the same context for particular reasons, whether they be historical or otherwise. Maybe they knew each other, maybe they didn't. But as far as the story is concerned, there's no reason to doubt that they could have come into contact with one another. It'd be fair to say then that the remarkable experience of Noah and his family would have been related many times in great detail to the descendants of Noah's family. I have no doubt that Nimrod would have grown up with the flood story being retold many times over. And I'm sure that the story of the rainbow and the faithfulness of God toward Noah would have been familiar. But then Nimrod doesn't appear at all to be the kind of person who reciprocates the faithfulness of God. Instead, it appears that Nimrod lives in open defiance of Yahweh. So when I think about the construction of the Tower of Babel, I don't see the actions of a person who has any interest in the faithfulness of God. According to the typical ancient Near Eastern paradigm of worship, the common practice was that the construction of a tower for religious ritual purposes was designed such that it enabled relationship between the God and the humans in a reciprocal fashion. You do the right things and make the God happy, and in return, the God blesses your endeavours, which makes you happy. At least, that's the theory. But that's not the case at Babel. 
We're talking about someone who's openly antagonistic toward the God who had saved mankind through the flood. He's not interested in reciprocating. He's not interested in faithfulness. He is opposed to God. He doesn't care about promises and rainbows. He wants to make himself like a God, and he wants to lead the world in a rebellion against the Creator. So why build the tower in such a way as to make sure that it would withstand the potential waters of a flood? Because Nimrod isn't counting on God keeping his word. He may be opposed to God, but he still fears God. He doesn't trust him. God may have promised not to destroy the world with the waters of a flood ever again. But Nimrod knew that God would respond in some fashion against his rebellion. And it looks like he didn't know what form that response was going to take. But it looks like he was betting on another flood. Yeah, I'd say you backed the wrong horse on that one. Yeah, it didn't work out for him, did it? But yeah, I think the whole trouble that we have with understanding the story of Nimrod is that when we read it as Christians, we just can't understand how anybody would not operate within the framework of that kind of faithfulness and reciprocal relationship. Because we see it in the Bible. God saves Israel out of Egypt and then he gives the law, which is the means by which people show their faithfulness to God in response to his faithfulness to them. Jesus forgives our sin on the cross and then we choose to live faithfully in a certain way in response to his faithfulness to us. So we get this story about Nimrod and it's almost unthinkable that somebody could be so evil. He's literally the next generation after the survivors of the flood and yet he defies God openly. And even though the text tells us these things plainly, you still get scholars to this day telling us that the Tower of Babel was built for the purpose of worshipping Yahweh. Like, what part of that story gave you that impression? You really have to bring that idea to the text because it just isn't there. So I can see that the defiance of Nimrod in spite of the promises of God is a tough pill for us to swallow, but I think that if we're reading what the text is actually telling us, it shouldn't be a surprise. Anyway, hopefully that's been a good answer for you, Colleen. Thanks again for asking the question. And don't forget, folks, if you're listening at home and you're thinking to yourself, hey, I've got a question I'd like to hear answered on the show, then by all means, go to the website, giantanswers.com, and send it in. Yeah, that's right, everyone. Please send in your questions. And, and don't forget, as we mentioned earlier, our coverage of Genesis 6 is coming soon. So if you have questions about that, get them in early because I'm sure it's going to be a hot topic and there will be a lot of interest in this. So if you want to get your questions on the show, then you need to get them in early. As Tim said, just get on the website, giantanswers.com, and send your questions in so that we can get them on the show for you. That's all for this week. And when we come back next week, we're going to talk about Noah's dad. Stay tuned. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you haven't already already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. What uh, what dinner are we talking? The, the big Hungry Jacks. Uh, oh, wow.
Special and, occasion. Yeah, the special occasion is uh, the boys went to Nana's, so um, there are less people here. Oh. Um, <laughs> and there is still just as much noise. Ah, uh, yes, if not more. It's because the women are here. Ah, uh, yes, the women. Mm. I've heard of them. Happy 4th of July. Uh, and also unto you, we are independent. Yes. I was going to say not that means anything uh, much down here, but whatever. No. Well, we're free of the British uh, imperialism. I don't know. Uh, but, yes, it doesn't really. I've had uh, American friends over the years go, happy Independence Day. Do you guys celebrate that in Australia? No, no, no. Yes. Well, you know, this from the nation that brought us the World Series baseball. <laughs> yes, uh, true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Just finished my meal from Hungry Jack's. Mm, not Burger King. Because Australia is bigger and badder than America, and when they tried to bring... Burger King here, they got sued by some little guy with a little burger shop in Melbourne. Oh, really? Is that the story? Who had the name Burger King here already. Oh, interesting. And that is why Burger King was forced to rebrand to Hungry Jack's in Australia. Thank you for that um, update. So there you go. You are now wiser. Well, yep. At least older. Um, true. Okay. My throat. Okay. That wasn't done by... by yep, what happened? Like a Band-Aid right off chocolate-flavoured milk. I can't find any eggnog anywhere. Um, do they still do the, like, really sweet, like the banana milk and the spearmint milk and... Strawberry yeah. one. Yeah, you get those, but they don't do it for me. No. I almost no. the um just the the malt flavored milk because I like that from time to time. Oh yep. Uh, but I decided I needed something more robust, so chocolate it is. Mm, that's a sophisticated palate. Set a high bar. <laughs> uh?